Hello and welcome to Learning to Fly, the Science for the Anthropocene podcast brought to you from the Lancaster Environment Centre of Lancaster University. I'm David Tyfield, the Professor of Sustainable Transitions and Political Economy at LEC. It's been a few months since we last recorded a podcast and much has changed in the interim, but as these things go, it's turned out that we were recording this episode in the midst of a very big few days for the climate. On the one hand, the world is again meeting at a COP at Sharm el-Sheikh, COP27, where yesterday the Director General of the UN announced that either the world forms a solidarity pact and tackles climate change together, or we by default sign a suicide pact. At the same time, the US midterms are also going on, no doubt also with uh, significance for the future contribution of the United States to climate action. In all of this, we find that the climate science, which is ever more startling, ever more assured, is still not making happen what needs to happen. Why is that? Well, today I'm delighted to be joined by a fantastic and insightful researcher on precisely this issue. Krista Mayer is a neuroscientist, science communicator and director of the UCL Climate Action Unit. Chris brings insights from neuroscience and psychology to how well we tell stories, how we tell them in the first place about climate change how we communicate about climate risk and how we create opportunities for climate action. He's been involved in a whole diversity of uh, really fantastic initiatives. Last year at the COP in Glasgow, he delivered a, um, something called the Policy Pathways in collaboration with Chatham House, which was an interactive policy simulation to help policymakers explore the opportunities that they have for increased ambition on climate action. He's also been involved in an award-winning documentary, Right Between Your Ears, which explores neuroscience and psychology of entrenched views. He's worked on children's radio, and he's done participatory theatre. And through the Climate Action Unit, he's also the director of a really unique and wonderful uh, funding programme called the Net Zero uh, Innovation Project. So, first of all, welcome, Chris. Delighted to be speaking with you. Delighted to be here. And it's taken us some time to make this happen. So uh, it is sort of, it feels rather auspicious that uh, we're, we're meeting today of all days. Let's get straight to it. You may know that we open with a standardised question for this podcast, which is, is your science fit for purpose in the 21st century? Well, no, or not really, or barely would be the answers that you could get on me on more positive or more negative days. And when it comes to my science, I sit at the intersection of, of climate and then the sciences of brain and mind, neuroscience and psychology. And so I'd say that the, the barely or the not really applies to both of them. Because what we see on the climate science side is that Yes, it is driving that ever more 
starker language around what is going to happen eh? the high, the the highway to hell that Gutierrez used yesterday or the cold red for humanity that he used half a year ago so it's fueling that ever starker language but it isn't yet fueling better decision making on climate change so the rhetoric is changing but the decision making is not following at the same pace as the problem um, and the language around the problem are evolving. So that's on the climate science side. So, so one of the things that we're often talking about is there is a lot of risk information for storytelling. It fuels that cold red for humanity messaging, but there isn't enough risk information for decision-making where decision-makers can use it in their day-to-day decision-making. I'm sure we can come back to that later on absolutely yes when it comes to the other to the neuroscience and psychology the answer there is barely two because as a science or as science as scientific disciplines neuroscience and psychology are as beset by siloism by by the the academic silos by navel gazing and 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 looking at on packing things simply for the sake of finding out the interesting stuff rather than thinking very much about how do we make this uh, work in society? How how do we make this generate impact in society? Despite all of the impact agenda, the primary focus of all of the scientists or most of the scientists we're working with is still on generating the academic publication and then the impact will will sort of is the thing that they start thinking about next, basically. Excellent. Yeah, delighted to hear uh, you cover both of those areas as well, uh, Chris. So, I mean, it, it resonates very strongly with a quotation from a report which we'll get back to shortly, uh, but which you published with others some years ago, 2014, I think it was. Uh, at that point, you were already saying uh, that there's a pressing need to re-examine and clarify the roles of climate scientists in policy, decision-making and public engagement. Their professional norms, values, practices need to be reconsidered and revised accordingly. And from what you were just saying, I think you might add that's exactly the same for mind scientists too. Is that is that right? Yes, indeed. And of course, since 2014, we have seen things changed quite considerably. So when we were saying it in 2014, it was a slightly bigger problem than it is today. But it is mostly the initiatives of individual scientists. And I think your podcast is an example of it, basically. So the initiative of individual scientists to make a change happen, to to think more about the impact and the delivery of, of sort of positive outcomes in society that has sort of been driven by individual scientists realizing that a change needed to happen and specifically young scientists who are entering the space these days when I work with PhD students most of them are doing a PhD in environmental science because they want to make a difference in society and that's certainly different from um, 20, 30, 40 years ago where you entered science because you were interested in discovery that's certainly the way that I started doing a PhD was because I was interested in finding out stuff. 
And only later did I start to realize that, hey, there's like a bigger need here than just satisfying my intellectual curiosity. So things are changing, but they haven't yet led to a wholesale reimagining of what the academic um, endeavor is for. The, the, the systems in which we are working is still heavily biased towards uh, valuing the discovery and the novelty aspect of science and much less focused on the delivering positive outcomes for society angle. That's really helpful, Chris. I mean, it's also a nice bridge to what I think would be a really good way to open the discussion, which is I personally would be very interested to hear how it was that you moved from uh, a PhD, you know, an early research career in neuroscience um, the mind sciences to to pick up the issue of of climate and policy. What what went on in in that story? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I think it started about twenty years ago when I was doing my PhD in uh, computational neuroscience. So it's building computer models of of brain operation, very similar to climate modeling, but then computer modeling of of brains rather than of the climate system, and I was I had started doing that and they'd given me also a computer with a, an internet connection uh, which was not you didn't it was still the day of, of dial-up modems mm-hmm. uh, late 1990s early 2000s and I was becoming exposed to sort of this emerging place on the internet where you got exposed to the opinions of many different people and the, we didn't yet have social media, but we had message boards on the early websites of newspapers like the BBC, the New York Times, the Guardian. They all started to have websites in those days. They had forums and message boards on there. And I was hanging out there as a as a citizen with interests, with political interests, with like real life interests. And at the same time, I was doing my neuroscience and very slowly, I started to think about the debates that were going on and the misunderstanding that I saw happening and the fights and the fragmentation and the polarization that I saw happening in front of my eyes and of which I was basically, in which I was taking part as a person with an opinion. And I started to think of that through the lens of what I was doing as a neuroscientist and, and the neuroscience and psychology that I was exposed to. And so gradually I started to look at that question of like, why is it that people are fighting with each other um, from the earliest days that we had the ability to meet each other online? Um, why is it that we're fighting about these issues? Um, and so rather than taking part of them, I started to start looking at them sort of analytically as a, as, as a scientist. And it wasn't then until 2008 when things like Climate Gate became apparent. Um, and there, there was a film on Channel 4 called The Great Global Warming Swindle, which was a, a climate skeptic piece that uh, Channel 4 these days is very ashamed about that they ever put it on air. But in those days, they did. And it's those kind of societal moments where I realized that climate was becoming polarized and was becoming was starting to generate those strong um, discussions for and against certain things that I started to pay attention to climate change. Then when Climate Gate really broke loose end of 2009, 2010, I was thinking like, 
I can see the science community and the policy community respond to this as if they don't know all the good stuff that psychologists and neuroscientists know about why things become controversial, why scientific uh, knowledge can become controversial. And of course, that's no, no surprise and it's no criticism because we have all of these academic silos and the neuroscientists and psychologists had not done a good enough job to make their insights land on the doorsteps of the climate scientists and, and other uh, scientists and policymakers who need or who, who would benefit from that knowledge. Um, so, so, but then I started to see that that was missing and I thought, okay, there's something here that needs happening. These insights need to, they've been sitting for a long time, some of them 70 years um, sort of like were discovered 70 years ago in psychological research. They're not really making an impact in this, in this very important societal debate at the moment. Uh, therefore, let's start doing something about this. And so in 2010, we tried to get a documentary on the BBC that, was, that would have helped to, to deal with some of that emerging questioning and skepticism around climate change that was very much in its early days in, in that time. And that was using the best psychology to tackle that, to answer that, to, to make sure that it didn't grow out of hand. Unfortunately, the media wasn't at all interested in that psychological perspective at that particular moment in time. They are much more today. It's much easier to get an interest a psychological or neuroscience interest in these questions going today, but it wasn't possible back in the day in 2010. So what we started to do instead is like we made a documentary called Ride Between Your Ears, which then wasn't specifically about climate change, but it was more in general about the psychology of how people become entrenched in a set of views and, and how that works. And then once you are very strongly believing something that seems absolutely weird to other people um it it doesn't matter that it's that it's weird to other people you have now become so embedded in that belief system that it makes perfect sense to you and and that film we use that as a means to bring out some of that psychological knowledge that goes back 70 years to bring that to a wider audience and part of that audience was the climate science community so on the back of making that film I started to work with a climate scientist, Chris Rapley, who um, had been director of the British Antarctic Survey, had been director of the Science Museum, and during his time at the Science Museum had realized that it wasn't just about giving people facts and knowledge, that it was thinking about how do you communicate in such a way that you connect with what people already know and think about the world, rather than try and push your perspective on other people. And so I started to work uh, more and more in the climate science domain. That then led to the publication of that report in 2014, uh, where I wrote for the first time, I wrote a chapter on different insights from neuroscience and psychology that can help you to communicate better as a scientist about climate change. Started to give workshops to PhD students about this from early 2014, when the first uh, NERC doctoral training programs were set up, started to teach on several of those. And then 
that led to more and more different kinds of communication training in some engagement projects for, for NERC, in some work that we did with storytellers in the media, um, and then also in, in how we started to work with policymakers. So at some point, we ran a training for DEFRA, where we brought environmental scientists together with environmental policymakers to help them crack their communication challenges together, which is not often done. Like Again, there is like silos going on there that make it difficult for the policymakers and the scientists to spend time together and to learn from each other about the kinds of challenges that they have. So I hope that's that's a bit of a of an of an insight in the journey that this has taken um, and and where we're sort of ending up today in the kind of work that we're doing. Yeah, well, and what I hear from that story, Chris, is well, first of all, you know where you started that uh, you were just engaging uh, as a citizen with online communication, and and it, you're absolutely right. I mean, from my own memory too, just how quickly it, it appeared to be. Uh, divisive and polarizing um, and then putting two, two and two together with um, what your research was I mean that in itself I think speaks to your your capacity for, for lateral thought um, which of course is so important for, for all the work that you're doing um, because I can imagine that many people uh, were in very similar situations to yours and didn't put two and two together uh, and were quite happy to to have their um, siloed uh, PhD work on one hand and their citizen participation on the other. Uh, so, I mean, that, that seems to be really quite an important point. But let's let's turn to this this 2014 uh, report, and it's really interesting to hear that that's the sp- the space where you first uh, enunciate uh, you know these commonplace preconceptions about how the mind works, uh, which are so influential. Uh, even if you know below the surface tacitly uh, on the the default model for science communication and particularly uh, around climate change, Th- this report uh, with Chris Rapley and others uh, that you, you who you mentioned, um, I, I mean I would summarise it by saying that you know there's a lot in there, but basically uh, it it explores the way in which um, how studying the mind sciences um, illuminates these multiple syst- systematic misconceptions that underpin what was already in 2014 quite clearly uh, current dis- dysfunctional relationships between science and society, specifically around climate change. They also then help explain why they're dysfunctional and indeed what could be done instead and better. So for the purposes of this podcast, uh, Science for the Anthropocene, um, that seems to me to relate to a really broad um, and interesting set of issues around science uh, and it's uh, the way it needs to change uh, its contribution to these problems of climate and Anthropocene, which are respectively how insights from the mind sciences illuminate what's wrong with how climate science is currently taken up and used in climate policy, uh, how it could be done better instead. Then what it tells us about the climate science itself and how that might need to be uh, changed. But then also, finally, to to bring it back to insights about how the mind sciences also perhaps uh, need to change. And, you know, the title of this podcast is Science for the Anthropocene. We want that to be inclusive as possible. And that means, on the one hand, of course, um, including the mind sciences and their contribution to climate change, but also including them in the 
critique in 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 some self reflection. So why don't we go through those points in turn? And that the first one, just to recap, is how the mind sciences illuminate what's wrong with the way climate science is currently being taken up or expected to contribute to climate policy. Now. In the report, you talk about a default linear model of climate science communication um, through to policy and public, um, and then the influence on um, climate policy. Could you just maybe start off by explaining for our listeners what that default linear model, the one that I'm sure they'll be very familiar with, uh, actually is? Yeah. So, so that that kind of knowledge comes out of of uh, branches of social sciences, like the study of science and technology in society is one of the domains. Some fields in sociology look at like what is the role that science plays in society, and that thinking around the linear model is that um, you do some basic science that leads to applied science. That applied science leads to uh, clarity around like uh, clarity around what policy you need to implement to solve a certain problem, and that policy then generates benefits for society coming out at the tail end of that. And so the the thinking around that is is that you just need to fund lots of that basic science. You need to fund some of that applied science. You need to then generate. Um, publications that go into the policy world that spell out what the right policy should be and then Bob's your uncle everyone will be living better lives after that so that has been um, according to the scholars who've been looking at that has been the dominant mode of science since at least World War II that was the the core thinking that sat behind the way that people thought science is operating in society and it worked for a long time because it works on problems that are fairly simple. Or they don't have to be super simple, but they, they're non-wicked problems. So it works on the problems that are not wicked. It works on the problems where you can come up with a fairly simple technocratic fix. Then you, you can implement that technocratic fix in policy because you are not upsetting vast swathes of society trying to do so. And the benefits come out at the tail end of that, and and so that worked. That worked on things like the 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 cleaning up of the of the acid rain to some degree because you only needed to intervene in the coal fired power stations that were generating most of the um, sulfur particles that were leading to the acid rain. It worked quite well on the. Um, the gases that were breaking down the ozone layer because again you just needed to intervene with the producers of uh, those those cooling systems you had to make technological alternatives available to them once they were available um, that could be that policy could be implemented and as a result of that those are two environmental problems that we did resolve since the 1980s but the places where it really breaks down is where you have a wicked problem and your problem pervades the whole of society because then you're starting your interventions need to potentially intervene in the whole of society as well. And then you start running into competing interests, competing values of different groups in society. Um, and that's what is then setting you up for the science and the scientific evidence to become controversial 
And this idea that I hear time and again of following the science just doesn't work when you're talking about wicked problems because there is not a clear linear path from the science identification of what the problem is to how then you resolve that particular problem. Absolutely. So the linear model breaks down in situations where you're dealing with wicked problems. So just to clarify for our listeners, for those who don't know this phrase of wicked problems, um, I mean, I would sort of define them as problems which are difficult to define uh, where the, you know, the, the actual problem itself is difficult to define. Um, it, it eludes uh, definitive, um, conclusive pinning down. Uh, and as you say, that very often is the case because uh, the problem spreads across society and involves so many different potential agents and uh, c- uh, considerations and factors. Um, so that yeah, you can't define the pro- problem, let alone define the solution, uh, and and that is why you you then get tangled up in a a wicked knot of some sort. Um, the the other thing that um, you know, so you were talking there about the CFCs and the ozone layer and the Montreal pro- Protocol. Um, I ha- I have you know there is literature that talks about the Montreal Protocol as sort of the 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 perfect example of. Um, science-led and then international political agreement. Uh, and, you know, as, as you say, it has been remarkably successful. And one can see how, you know, starting from scratch, it would have been the obvious model uh, for climate change. Like the ozone layer, climate change is an international problem. It needs an international agreement, it seems. Uh, it's also, um, like the ozone layer, a, an issue that we couldn't possibly have identified as a problem that needs to be tackled without the input from science. So these two things together suggest, well, it worked for CFCs, we should obviously do the same thing for climate. And yet it, 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 does, it hasn't uh, and it doesn't work in the same way for the reasons that you've uh, outlined there, Chris. I mean, uh, there are other aspects to this as well, though, when we get to climate, aren't there, which are that if in the case of atmospheric science or you know the, the CFCs, the, the idea is that the science will establish the true and singular facts about the problem, which will then be passed to politicians and the publics, and that uh, they will then you know gather together with pressure from the, the public to, to do something, and then the problem will be solved. When we translate that into climate, what we find is that we go into a whole further sort of um, set of preconceptions about how this process will work, which is that if that process is not working, in other words, if the climate action that the policymakers are agreeing is insufficient, um, or conversely, that there's absent or inadequate public or political or institutional will, that all that's needed, therefore, is for them to be exposed to more of the science, to really understand the problem. And perhaps uh, if that's not working, well, then you start to uh, motivate them with uh, messages of fear about what will really result if they don't act. And then finally, if they still don't act and there's still a persistence of recalcitrance, there's only one uh, exo- uh, explanation, which is that it's evidence of straightforward and deliberate malign intent. Mm-hmm. Um so what we've experienced is that the translation of the model from the CFCs uh, where it did work to climate where it doesn't work has unpacked 
uh, all these other uh, expectations about uh, the process and that the, the failure of the process has largely uh, led to a, a social feedback loop where what is not questioned is the model of this science-informed decision-making. Rather, what it's led to is precisely the entrenching of views uh, about the problem itself and its seriousness or its lack of seriousness. Um, and I think that's probably why the work that you've been doing of bringing in the, the central question here, uh, which is that all of this is taking place, this whole, this whole process is taking place in and through people's minds is so important because one can see how, um, you know, within the social sciences, as you mentioned, you know, the, the whole debate about the linear model that comes from sociology or social sciences, it's possible to be exploring what's going on regarding climate action and its absence or failure um, purely through social mechanisms. And yet there is still something lacking there, possibly because, in fact, there's very little mind or subjectivity in the, in the social sciences uh, for other reasons maybe we'll get to. Um, but we do, in the end, need to recognise what kind of subject is the, the, the central mediator of these dysfunctional, uh, these dysfunctional feedback loops uh, regarding climate action, which I think brings us to precisely, you know, the preconceptions that you've examined in this report and obviously many times since. So I, I don't suppose you remember them all <laughs> off the top of your head. I'm very happy to uh, point you in some directions. But perhaps you could just, just start with the, what seems to me to be the basic point, which is that you know, we have this, the, all these precon, we have all these preconceptions, which then play out in terms of uh, how we expect science uh, and knowledge and thinking will be used in society. All of this is presume presumes that um, humans are basically rational um, and cognitive, and in fact, the starting point, as far as I can see it, is that, that the mind sciences have shown very clearly that we habitually have two types of thinking. So perhaps we could start there. Could you tell us a little bit about these two types of thinking and, and then what preconceptions arise from uh, our, our misunderstanding of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I love how you, how you brought out all the different things that came with that failing of the linear model. And indeed, some people in the social sciences were saying, hey, the model is wrong. But most people continue to work under the assumptions that the model was the, the thing that needed to work and that it was um, then then either stupid people or evil people who were getting in the way of it being at making the change happen. Um, and so, so the preconceptions that we're tackling in the report are all there to bring out these specific aspects of what you can call people's common sense psychology, the way that scientists who are not mind scientists we're all common sense psychologists. We all have a sense of how people work or should be working. And that common sense psychology then feeds our explanations of why it isn't working in the way that you described. And so central to the way to challenge that common sense psychology is this idea that our minds are not doing one type of thinking, but at least two different types of thinking, uh, qualitatively different types of thinking. And those are intuitive 
automatic responses to information and to events and to other people versus the the cognitive deliberation, what we call reasoning, the little voice in our heads. And so traditionally we think, and scientists think this more than other people, that we are rational, uh, deliberative, reasoning people, or that we should be rational, deliberative people, if it wasn't for the pesky emotions getting in the way, not in us, but in other people most of the time. So, so we should be driven by that like thinking, reasoning, rationality. But what the science is telling us, what the neuroscience and psychology is telling us, is that most of what goes on in our brains, including in the brains of scientists, is intuitive, automatic thinking. And you becoming an expert in something means that something that needed um, cognitive effort, that needed that slow kind of reasoning where you stepped through um, a, a logical argument in your own head, basically, to help you understand a new paper that you're reading or an experiment that you're trying to devise or whatever. The more you become an expert in something, the more that the intuitive automatic parts of the brain will shortcut that process and will make that a much faster effortless endeavor where you automatically see the solution to a problem or you automatically get a response when someone asks you a question rather than having to think through it. So this me this makes this distinction between intuitive and, and, and deliberative reasoning, intuitive thinking and deliberative reasoning plays out in all of us, uh, including in scientists. But the importance for the way that we are thinking about how other people should be adopting our science is that what has become very intuitive to us does not in the same way become intuitive to other people who haven't taken the same journey in life as we have had. So things that's, that look very intuitive to us look very alien to people that we might come with the evidence and we might say, hey, you need to pay attention to this because this is a big problem and blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't land in the same way in their brains as it lands in our brains. My favorite metaphor for helping to understand how these two ways of thinking sit side by side is to think of the intuitive automatic parts of a brain as a big elephant and to think of reasoning as a little rider that sits on top of the elephant. So what we think is that the rider is in control or should be in control. That's what our common sense psychology is telling us. But what the science is telling us is, is that it's the elephant that is calling the shot most of the time for most of us, including scientists. So it's got nothing to do. The elephant is not the seed of irrationality. It is not the seed of bad thinking. It is the seed of intuitive, automatic responses to information. The things that your brain parse effortlessly um, and and therefore that that given if you have had different life experiences, your brain will parse different things effortlessly. And that's what then sets up different groups of people working in different institutions or organizations or sectors or even academic disciplines respond very differently to the same information that's being put in front of them. Obviously, I've I've read your stuff, you know, um, I, I should add that, you know, we're going to get to the, the NZIP, the, the Net Zero Innovation uh, Projects uh, shortly too. And um, I, I've I've been a, a grateful 
uh, recipient of funding uh, from that program as well. So you know we've we've uh, been in interaction now for for a, a while, but just listening to you explain that again, Chris, one of the things that really leaps out for me is that all this exploration and illumination of how the mind actually works, how how people how how living persons actually think and reach judgments, it, it almost, to me, boils down to the, the very sort of common sense lesson. But now with so much you know, ballast behind it, that, that people are different, right? That, mm-hmm. um, that there is plurality and specificity in, in people's minds and perspectives. And that because... You know, in the different preconceptions, and maybe, again, we won't go through them in detail, but it seems to me that they're making two points. One is how we actually think and make decisions rather than how we always already presume we do. But then also how, at one remove, how we then judge others uh, who have made decisions. Now, both of those are the same question if we assume that everybody is rational, uh, Mm -hmm. because... We presume that we make decisions and everyone makes decisions rationally. And then we, when we encounter someone who has made a different decision to us, we can only assume that, well, I'm rational, so they are irra- irrational. Or, as you say, evil or stupid. Um, because that's the only thing that's left on the table. They can't be rational because I'm rational and I came to a different decision. Um, so both those things are the same point when we presume uh, universal rationality. Uh, in the way that people think. But when we actually uh, are illuminated uh, by the um, the sciences of the mind about the fact that there are these two different ways of thinking happening in everybody, then we uh, we then have the uh, the material, the the resources with, with which we can think clearly that it's to be expected that people have different reactions. Uh, and it's not irrational that they do. So we can't leap to that conclusion. And therefore, of course, what it, it invites is actually looking at the way in which we can communicate and uh, learn from each other better, which seems to me to be, again, a, a sort of a, a key takeaway from, from all of your work. If we could just f- focus in on um, a couple of these things very quickly, because I think they're, they're so important. You've already mentioned the elephant and the rider, which, uh, uh, again, I think is a, is a really uh, illuminating analogy. Could you just tell us a little bit about how this then plays out in terms of polarization, uh, belief formation, in particular this idea about the descent of the pyramid? I think the listeners will find that extremely interesting. Yeah, so this is to do with how then our brains, which have that automatic intuitive and a reason component, how we come how we move from having weak to strong opinions about something, how we move from having not have any clear view about an issue to having a very clear view where we think that our view is the, is the right one. And that's through um, that sort of like, or, or the analogy of the pyramid, which we used to explain that likens that moment or compares that moment where you don't have a strong opinion about something, you don't have a clear view about something as being at the tip of a pyramid. And what happens is that for a while you may be pondering an issue, you may not come to a conclusion, you may not have a preference, but at some point your brain may say, you know, based on the on all of the evidence that I've seen right now, 
I think X about this, this issue. I think that, yeah, I think climate change is a problem. Or I think, oh, no, I think climate change isn't that much of a problem. I see some, some like inconsistencies in how it's being portrayed to me, um, for example. So, so that kind of like that goes on in the minds of lots of people who start to, when you start to think about an issue, that's the kind of process that happens. Once you then make that initial decision in a way where you say, you know, based on the evidence that I have right now, I think X, that's like a step off on one side of the pyramid. What happens in your brain immediately after you've taken that initial decision, which is often very, very slight preference differences, um, is that you start justifying the decision that you have just made. And part of that sits in the elephant, part of that sits in things that happen at the level of brain cells, but part of that sits also or is explainable at the level of psychology, where we are starting to to try and convince ourselves that we are making the right decisions. We're looking for additional reasons, justifications for why our decision is the right one. And so we make ourselves a little bit more certain of the, the, the correctness of the decision we make. That then means that our next action is much more likely to go in the same direction. So now I start talking to my friends and family about my decision. I put posts upon social media. Perhaps I enter in an argument with a stranger on Twitter about this. And all of these actions tend to increase or lead to more self-justification because we want to be right. We like th this, this focus on on being a truthful, righteous person is so much part of our culture that that is an important driving force in, in wanting to justify our decisions to ourselves. And um, that then means that we're convincing ourselves the further we go through that cycle of action leading to more self-justification, that's like each of those actions are steps down the pyramid. So the deeper we go on down that pyramid, the more convinced we become that we have made the right decision. Um, the different we become from the person we were at the top, because we're starting to add new ideas to our reasoning, which we didn't have when we made the additional decision. Um, and also the more different we become from someone who we shared that tip of the pyramid with, maybe some weeks or months or years ago, but who took their step off on the other side of the pyramid their first step, and then started to go through a process of self-persuasion and self-justification that drove them away from us. So we call this the, the pyramid of, of self-persuasion and the pyramid of polarization to bring out those two specific facts is that for most of the, or for all of us who are passionately engaged in something like either climate activism or climate skepticism uh, to, to pick two sides of, of one particular pyramid is we've gone through that process of self-persuasion and that's the thing that has made us so passionate about the issue because we've done that persuading to ourselves. It's happened in our brains. It happened with, with the help of materials that we found online, conversations that we had influence from other people, but it's still a process that happened in the brain of an individual person. So self-persuasion and then polarization because of the consequences this has in society where you were, when we go through that process, 
we end up in stark opposition to people on the other side. And that's then when the judgment comes in that you already mentioned, the judging other people where we say, well, we are rational because because I've just gone through that process of making sure that what I look at is the right sort of evidence. And therefore, these other people that are disagreeing with me must either be irrational or they are misled by other people or they're too stupid to ever know the things that I know or they're evil. They do know the stuff that I know, but for their own benefits, they keep on saying other things. And the people on the other side of the pyramid do exactly the same to us. So they are accusing us of all of those things. And that's where then the, the big standoffs and the, and the big polarization in society is coming from. It's from as a result of that process of self-persuasion that more and more people go through as an issue becomes more and more important. Again, listening to you, Chris, all kinds of things have really popped out for me. This uh, mechanism of self-justification is so compelling and, and so sort of phenomenologically um, real. You know, it's, I'm sure if we reflect, um, this isn't, you know, what you're saying is precisely, this isn't what other people do, right? This is what you and I do. This is what everybody does. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, that obviously has to be the starting point here. But you also said something which was really interesting, which was that this mechanism of self-justification, this, this importance to ourselves of uh, being right in our views, being a good person, uh, committed uh, to the right causes with the right opinions is so important in our culture and and I think that 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 is a really profound statement it, it does seem to me that when we talk about our culture um, I would in particular talk about you know contemporary uh, euro-american culture I mean one of the things you talk about you were just mentioning was in terms of um, how this then leads to the polarization of the relationships with, with other people. And you said you talk to your friends or your family. But of course, in this process of polarization, of, of self-justification and belief formation, as you yourself go down the pyramid, it's very possible that friends no longer uh, continue to be friends. Mm -hmm. um, that members of your family you know, we, we know, of course, you know, uh, this has happened many times throughout history, but obviously the most uh, recent example in Britain, we heard, a, you know, we all know about families that have been sort of sundered by uh, views on Brexit, for instance. Mm -hmm. And how terrible is that? You know, this is an, an actual family that presumably loved each other beforehand now can't speak. Uh, because of uh, view formation in this particular way. And there's something going on there, it strikes me, in terms of the way in which we are in a culture which particularly values one's self-esteem, the, the esteem of oneself uh, and one's views as being right. Um, whereas perhaps in another culture, that would still be there, but it might be more balanced by other considerations. So the, the disagreement of someone who you know that you love right, uh, would, would actually be something that you take into account rather than leading to the opposite conclusion, which is that, well, I can't love them because I disagree with them on this. It seems to me that that error or the, the rather catastrophic weighting of the input of does this person who I love agree with me or not, as opposed to, well, I think this um, and, you know, they disagree with me, so they must be wrong and probably bad. Um, 
that seems to me to be an error that is likely to be particularly strong in a culture where that always already that a priori common sense psychology is one that does believe in the rationality of people um, because then uh, I must be rational I must prove to myself my rationality that's why it's so important to me and conversely I must believe that the other person I'm speaking with is rational and capable and therefore if they reach a different decision again we're back at this this conclusion that that must only be because they're bad mm -hmm. um, so there's something again uh, that's really profound uh, in uh, challenging these preconceptions which is as it were to turn the pyramid from a slippery slope to the possibility that you take that that minor step to the left or to the right and then you only stay there um, mm -hmm. because um, you're not going to follow down the path of uh, self-justification. It's, it's one factor in your psychology which contributes to belief formation. But so too are the other inputs from what, you know, people who you know you like on other issues, uh, people who have um, shown you care over many years. Um, that too is a material factor uh, in your your belief formation, and you can, in a sense, can um, you can be happy with coming to a decision uh, and holding it lightly. I think of A. J. P. Taylor, the historian, who said mm -hmm. uh, famously, I, "I have strong views, but lightly held." That seems to me to be uh, the, the the better position rather than strong views um, tightly held and therefore mm -hmm. you know diving down the pyramid as it were. A another aspect of this is, of course, uh, how all of this relates through that, in a sense, coincidental but sort of potentially catastrophic parallel uh, emergence, which is that of social media. Um, because we are all familiar that a uh, one of the many neologisms that uh, social media has thrown up uh, for us is that of virtue signaling. And uh, I mean, I've had th thoughts about why that's such a phenomenon in terms of the, you know, the, the, the ostensible, uh, you know, the quite, well, the, the real complexity of the world that we now live in and the determination in that complex world and uncontrollable world to feel that you are nevertheless a good person, but you can't change anything. So you're, uh, what you want to do is just to say, okay, but I'm, I'm a good person. And so you, you just hold up the card. Uh, which is, you know, the, the signal. But mm -hmm. there's a whole sort of uh, psychological aspect to this as well, which is what you've unpacked there, uh, which is um, there in the mechanism of the going down the pyramid, which is this tight holding to the need to self-justify is the driver in particular to, to virtue signal. And, of course, it then plays out in this other preconception, which is that, you know, we judge people um, on the same standards as ourselves. We judge them, we judge ourselves on our rationality of, of judgment. We judge them on their rationality of judgment. But uh, as, as you say in the report, that's completely wrong. And you quote, I think it's David Brooks, um, mm -hmm. who says, um, we judge ourselves by our intentions, our friends by their behavior and our enemies by their mistakes, which just to paraphrase and bring this all back together is to say we judge ourselves by our intentions. That is by the fact that we know that we're trying to be rational and we're, we're good rational people. We judge our friends by their behavior. In other words, by the fact that their behavior is in accord with what you would expect to be rational behavior. Uh, and then we judge our enemies. And in fact, we choose, we, we, we designate 
as enemies uh, people who are acting in ways which are frankly in disregard of what we decide is the right uh, the right way to behave. So all of these things sort of tie together, really. And, and at the core of that, surely, is this mistake that we're rational. Yes, indeed. And, and I love how you picked up the, the quote of David Brooks, because for me, it's a, it's a quote that summarizes 60 years of, of certain branches of social psychology research. And absolutely, it, it is as you describe. But what is important is that that judging itself sits in our elephant and and is part of our is it feels so much it's so feels so natural to be doing that the judging of other people it's so effortlessly we we don't need to think about it for most of us that it is unquestioned it's the thing that we almost never question it's like our judgments of other people and again there is then this is where it's important that these are scientific insights or that they're underpinned by scientific evidence in their own right because they tell us something about who we are as human beings rather than allowing us to do our own uncorrected thinking that then leads us down the cul-de-sacs that our our own psychology takes us into. eh? The, The fact that it is natural to come up with the idea that the people who don't agree with me must be evil people or stupid people. If that's the natural thing that I uh, that I will think, then the science here can help me to stay away from that, to move away from that, and to say like, oh, maybe, maybe I don't understand why they are saying what they are saying, rather than saying I do understand and it's got all of these reasons. And that's what I meant earlier when I said the science community was responding to things like climate gate, unaware of the insights that other parts of science are giving them to respond better. And so it's it's like you can use these insights to move away from knee-jerk reactions that our brains are jumping to, conclusions that our brains are jumping to, and lead us to better conclusions where we have more productive interactions with people. And it doesn't mean that all of us need to start talking to people who who massively disagree with us. That's not what I mean. But what it does mean is that we need to create um, a community of, of communicators where some people are able to talk to parts of society that currently are not listening to the arguments in the language that we're currently using which is, for example, take one of them, save the planet. Save the planet is a phrasing that resonates with 40-50% of the UK population at the moment. It's unlikely to increase dramatically. It's unlikely that 20 years in the future, the whole of the UK population will respond positively to save the planet. And the reason is because of the way that people's values, this is another insight, another sort of the preconceptions that we're, that we're tackling. Uh, people's values, which is the things that are important to them in life, make them either open to a phrasing like save the planet or, or don't make them open to that kind of phrasing. Because it, 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 for some people, it resonates automatically with the way they're thinking about the world. And for some people, it doesn't resonate automatically with their way of thinking because for them the world is much more about the things that they're seeing around them and the litter on the street and the litter in the park 
and and those are the things that you can get people to care about but not necessarily that save the planet framing isn't meant for everyone basically yeah excellent i mean so just to continue my analogy of the slippery slope right it's it sounds to me very much that the the major contributions that the mind sciences can give is to as it were add sandpaper or or grit on that slippery slope or mm-hmm. even a rope to hold on to so mm-hmm. that um you can take that step to the side and there's more input there's a reminder that actually okay i've made this decision but um it, i'm going to keep keep open minded about why people have made other decisions let, let let's let's move on to another of the really important things that you mentioned there um and it, again it talks to what you were just saying about save the planet or earlier about um Guterres's, uh highway to hell analogy which is the shall we say uh, multiple and unexpected and often unwanted effects of appeals to fear um, in climate science and climate policy. Um, now I'm presuming that fear uh, is um, a is overwhelmingly an intuitive reaction. Is that right? So uh, it it, uh, it it speaks mostly to the. Um, uh, the, the fast thinking part of our um, of our mind, uh, and therefore uh, the, the bit that um, well is certainly going to be different from person to person, uh, and will react in whatever way it reacts can be tutored slowly over time, but uh, isn't just going to react on the basis of well that sounds bad, therefore I don't want that to happen. I, is that right? Yes, absolutely. So. Emotions are the sign, are, are a consequence or an indicator that you got through to people's elephant, basically. But what they are not is, um, they are not predictable drivers of action. So if you are, as a communicator, you say, well, I'm going to write a really scary story about climate change because I want people to feel the fear and then get them... Um, or I want, even if, if, if it's not that stark, even if you want to say, I want to raise their concern about climate change. Um, and then some people will say, I want them to be scared about climate change. So with those gradations in mind, even if you manage to generate that emotion in a person, it doesn't mean that they will then, that that then will lead to predictable action. And the reason is that it's, or um, so, so the place where this was first studied was in the psychology, in health psychology and communication around health psychology, uh, for example, things around smoking. And what they found there in those studies is that fear appeals work. And in a way, the scarier the message, the more they can work, but only under a set conditions the fear must feel personal. It must feel like it's something that threatens you personally. You must understand it as something that will affect you personally. And then together with the fear, you need to communicate a doable, concrete, and meaningful solution. And and those three labels are, all three need to be present. It needs to be concrete. So it can be an abstract thing. Like it can be like, we need to take action on climate change. It needs to be, you need to walk to this place to get a vaccine. And that's going to, that's that level of concreteness. 
um, well, that was messages that were tested in the 1970s. Um, it needs to be doable. People need to be able to engage in the action and it needs to be meaningful, meaning that once you've taken the action, the reason for the fear needs to be taken away. And if you have those conditions in place, you can really heap on the fear. You can increase the fear content of your message and it will drive more action. It's, we've seen with COVID that that has worked quite well. It still doesn't work all of the time. So you still probably got like in the UK a 90, 10% split uh, in people who took the vaccine and thought it was safe and that it was going to help them versus the ones who became very much anti-vaccine uh, for COVID. So, so that's the ideal situation. And then the non-ideal situation is every, every situation where any of these aspects is missing because then what you generate is very unpredictable outcomes. So at an individual level, sometimes people will jump into action and say, they will tell you, well, I read this really scary story or book or, or newspaper article, and that's when I really started to pay attention to climate, and that really spurred me into action. But there are also, for every person who, who tells you that story, there are others who have just turned away from paying attention, who switched off and stopped being interested. And there will also be um, now increasingly groups of people who think uh, that it's too late, who, who for whom it fuels complete hopelessness. And that's especially a problem amongst young people. So they're not spurred into action necessarily. They're, they're driven into cynicism and hopelessness. And then the final reaction that it can generate is denial. Like so many of the active climate skeptics in the UK have or, or don't their look up. story. Yes. Yes. Yeah, their yeah. first story was one where they were um, exposed to a really alarming story about climate change. And they went like, I don't really believe this. They're trying to manipulate me for benefits of their own making. So that social judgment kicks in again. But then they start looking, they start paying attention to things. They come across the climate skeptic narratives online. They go down their own pyramid. And it really becomes like natural for them to think that we are using scare stories to try and manipulate people in doing X. But so that's also a consequence of using fear appeals. And that's not often understood by people who say, yeah, but, but I got interested in climate change because of a fear appeal. Well, good for you, but you, you are not paying attention to the ones who are saying that they were turned off from paying attention to climate change because of the same fear appeal that spurred you into action. So as a comm strategy, it is not going to work. It's not going to get there. It, it's not going to lead to clarity of action as a comm strategy. Yes, excellent. To sort of summarise that again, I mean, listening is very clear, Chris, that um, fear sort of acts as something of a, a supercharger of the, the pyramid mechanism, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's as if there's a, a great big... Um, magnet that's placed at the bottom uh, and it's pulling you down uh, and then you know obviously really importantly there to recognize that a different reaction to fear uh, is not in itself also uh, grounds for uh, moral judgment of that person if we accept that 
people have different psychologies and they are what they are, there's no reason at all why, again, someone we like or indeed love might have a very different fear reaction uh, to who we are. Um, and we're not going to, I would hope, change our opinion on them just on that. We would hopefully uh, show some care for that different response uh, rather than it leading to the, the judgment that therefore they must be bad people. Mm-hmm. I mean, but uh, one of the things that you noticed in the report um, or it might actually have been in a, in a, in a later uh, publication of yours, is that on some counts, up to 98% of environmental news stories are negative uh, in nature. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is this implicit wisdom, conventional wisdom, amongst many media communicators that fear is the, the default uh, mode for, for this kind of communication. Uh, let's just move on to the, the next point, really, which is about how, how all these insights illuminate what's wrong with climate science. Uh, itself. And I think probably if we can focus on one sort of key aspect to that, which is something you've already mentioned, which is that this belief in the rationality, uh, at least the, the, the normative rationality, that people should be rational in how they think, is likely to be particularly strong amongst the scientific community. And so that plays out in terms of how they then want to translate their messages to public insofar as they do but also then how they respond to uh, maybe unsolicited uh, communication uh, from the public, such as it in uh, extremists, something like Climate Gate, sort of rabbit in headlights kind mm-hmm. of situation. Could you say a little bit about the specific ways in which these insights illuminate problems that the scientists themselves contribute to, and maybe even some of the other roles that science, scientists do and or should play, uh, but which are uh, often uh, neglected by those scientists themselves? Yeah, so I think I've already spoken quite a bit about scientists engaging with people who disagree with them Mm. indirectly through talking about don't jump to to judge other people so quickly, uh, don't feel so quickly uh, that they're attacking you. Of course, there are clear signs of people attacking you, but it doesn't Uh, don't take it that personally it's not about you as a person it's about the people who are attacking you jumping to conclusions through their own elephant and social brains and therefore attacking you because what you're saying jars with what they believe about the world but i think one other place where it's really important to understand is in the communication of risk and the communication of risk is for me very different from Uh, fear-inducing, headline-grabbing messages like cold red for humanity. For me, that's not risk communication. That is is, uh, fear-inducing communication. But good risk communication helps decision-makers make better decisions. And what the science community, the climate science community, has done, and this is not directly through, through fault of theirs, this is because of the way that the science was set up in the first place, is to try and communicate the, the, the pure climate science itself and to try and communicate that with uncertainty and everything to the decision makers, then hoping that the decision makers would start making the right decisions uh, based on that. And what we are seeing in all of the work that we are doing more and more and more is that that doesn't work. Because having an understanding of how the science tells you at a sort of 
planetary or systemic level, the things that are going to happen, doesn't help you to make better decisions if you are a policymaker in a government that needs to balance many other different concerns, including the state of the economy and whether you're still going to get elected next time that an election happens, etc. Or, or indeed, if you're going to go to Sharm el-Sheikh. <laughs> indeed, exactly. Yeah, that, those kind of simple decisions. So, so, um, so that's. Or if you're a decision maker in business and you need to think about like making sure that you fulfill the targets that your boss has set you. One at the same time, you've got your private concern about climate change because you've understood the the problems that come out of the climate science community. So one of the things that the science community needs to become a lot better at is translating the risk information into what we call the the right risk currency. And the risk currency is the, the, the concerns and the risks that decision makers intuitively understand the stuff that keeps them awake at night because when it when it's not going well. So that could be for a person in business, in a financial institution, in a political context, could be very different things than climate change or the the, the or temperature rise or sea level rise. Those aren't like the risk currencies that those other decision makers are thinking in. So what climate scientists can do is much better take time to understand how do I translate the things that I care about, which is the the metrics that I'm studying as a climate scientist, into stuff that really helps decision makers make better decisions. And some climate scientists are doing that. But by and large, the science community as a whole, the stuff that the IPCC is producing is not yet of that kind. The IPCC is producing ever more detailed uh, summaries in the currencies of the climate science community, and not yet there isn't yet enough of that scientific endeavor that really tries to push it all the way into the climates into the decision makers' domain. The climate services um, ecosystem was set up to do that, but it's not really working, and there are increasing amount of academic publications about what the climate services community is not achieving at this particular moment. And one of them in particular um, that I quite liked that was published out last year said that the, the climate services have been promising better decisions for a long time, but all they do is produce more data. And the reason why they're stuck in that data production mode is because there isn't yet enough of a, of a practice and an, an established way for the people working in those sectors to understand that if they want to produce things for decision makers, they first need to start with listening. At the moment, academically, we are always working from a, a preconception that we've got data and insights available and we just need to communicate those to the end users of our work. What we are not automatically grasping for is the tool of listening, where we say, well, I, I see this community not making use of my science. Let's go and listen to them, what it is that they need in order to make better decisions, and then try to work with them to translate my scientific insights into the things that will really help them make better decisions. So that's one of the places where there is a 
a shift like it's if if we need to think of this in like who needs to move the furthest then is a science community needs to move 80 percent in the way in the direction of the decision makers and the decision makers need to move some part towards what the science community is doing at the moment because often the decision makers don't really know what it is that they need in terms to make better decisions so there's a shaping of their demand that is needed but once, you, once they can articulate their ask in the right way, then the science community should go further and produce data in the formats that the decision makers really need. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, what a clarion call. Thank you, Chris. I want to just cover, move on to you know, just a, a, a few more issues. What you've just set out, though, is a perfect bridge um, to, to go to NZIP. And... I mean, for instance, in one of your recent publications, you say that what we need now are not menus for climate action, that is, uh, but recipes, cookbooks and cooking classes. Um, and I couldn't agree more with that. And uh, from my experience um, on the NZIP programme, I would say that it is uh, unique uh, in the support it offers uh, for uh, climate action research, um, but also... Uh, a brilliant program, uh, really um, successful. For those who don't know the program, please look it up on UCL's website. It basically consists of two elements, as far as my experience tells me. Chris, you might want to correct me, which is basically on the one hand, projects are invited, which are uh, place-based, uh, specific forms of climate action, all of which have to be partnerships between uh, the local authority in that space, in that place, and a university partner. Uh, and then together, these partnerships, which may also be new for that project, uh, go through a, um, a program of education provided by the NSIP team, uh, outlining many of the things that we've been talking about today, about the, 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 the psychology neuroscience uh, insights on uh, the way in which best to... Uh, relay or um, reflect upon or, or draw upon climate science, um, but also then in terms of actually how to run those partnerships best, how to, how to make them work, how to make them impactful. And there's a, a, th a further really important, again talking personally from experience, point from your neuroscience psychology underpinning all of that, which is that while the presumption is that first of all you get the beliefs right and then people will act upon them, actually we see time and again, and especially when problems are difficult, that action precedes belief formation. So in a sense, that doesn't have to be about going down a pyramid, but certainly the, the changing of one's view uh, reflects one's action or indeed inaction. So doing something as it were, is uh, the, the, the key starting point to all of this. Now, um, you've already talked about um, some of the insights that have come out of this program, Chris, in terms of the importance of working with risk currencies, of um, uh, the listening to policymakers rather than broadening, uh, broadcasting, sorry, uh, that if you just get people together in a room, that sounds like it's a good thing, but actually very often it won't work, and why? Just very briefly, in, 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 could you just maybe say a little bit about 
some of the standout examples or, or further lessons that have come out of two or three rounds of NZIP? Yes, absolutely. And, and indeed, NZIP is, is sort of a, a culmination, one of, the, one of the culminations or one of the places where these insights really are put into practical use. And the, the thing is that we th- this idea of actions driving our beliefs and understanding, we try to put that to, in, into practice in all of the programs we're doing. And the NZIP program is one of them in that we tell you about these insights. We help you to use those insights to um, tackle a problem for a local authority that needs to deliver some local climate action. And that could be communicating, engaging citizens. It could be some internal piece of council decision-making that needs to change like procurement processes or investment processes, etc. And then we use those insights to help you build a partnership with the uh, between the, the academics that are part of the program and the local authority partners that you have. And the reason for, for using those insights and for taking time to build that partnership is simply because of the way that different working practices, working in a council versus working in a university, makes you look at the world in a very different way. And then putting you together in a project doesn't automatically mean that you will that you might start working very productively from the very first moment. So most people with enough goodwill and enough time will work it out for themselves. But we're trying to kickstart that process by which you can can really like like fast track through some of that working out what the differences are between the ways that you normally work. Um, but then we also help you to put those insights to use within the projects that you're delivering be it a a communication engagement piece, be it trying to shift some internal piece of how the council uh, is working. And the the reason for doing that is that we saw in 2019, when all the councils were declaring climate emergencies, we saw lots of academics go to their local councils and offer their help and say, we want to help you with the expertise that we have on climate change, on decarbonization, whatever. And we wanted to make that the norm rather than a chance event where the right scientist would walk through the door of the right council meeting to then have an impact on how the council can deliver climate action. But we also wanted it to move beyond what we call the consultancy model of how academic experts have been working together with councils up until this moment, which is where sometimes in the past where a council realized they needed a piece of evidence, they would contract someone in the academic institution to generate the evidence for them or to write a report on on a, a certain piece of local policy that needed to come, uh, that needed to be implemented. And then often those projects don't deliver because the, the, the report that is being produced or the evidence that is being produced, again, isn't in the right f- format that it can drive real decision-making within the council. And even if one part of the council, if one um, department within a council uh, n- realized the need for a piece of evidence and produced that evidence, it doesn't then automatically mean that they can land it in other parts of the council or that they can land it with the decision makers in the council who are the, the elected members. 
And so what we're trying to do with this program is is to fix all of these things at once, to fix the way that councils and universities are working together in equal partnerships rather than in in that consultancy mode, to, to help those partnerships become productive faster than they would otherwise be possible to become productive if, if it's left to people figuring it out again and again in their own from their own experience. And then the third thing is to deliver tangible climate action on the ground, which would be difficult to deliver if that partnership didn't exist. So it really is the academic expertise of the academic partner and the expertise of how the council works of the of the council partners that come together and that make the delivery of these action um, of these local actions more effective than in the old model, which was that consultancy model. Excellent. I want to finish up and then we'll have the, the final closing question shortly. By, in a sense, I hope this isn't too contrived, pulling together two issues, one of which we're obviously talking about now, which is, in fact, the necessary institutional change in science uh, and its interaction with society. Um, this was something that you flagged, that you called for, that was recommended in your 2014 report. And uh, obviously, in a sense, uh, with NSIP, I'm delighted to see that you've you know, sort of taken matters into your own hands, right? And you've decided that uh, um, if it's not going to happen uh, elsewhere, well, you'll try and put something in place to, to make sure it begins to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, I suppose my question is, you know, to what extent do you see that that change uh, in science that you've requested, demanded, uh, is actually taking place? I mean, how easy was it, for instance, to get the NZIP program established? And then um, with a slight sidestep, this final question of bringing us back to science of the Anthropocene, of um, the lessons for the mind sciences, because it feels one of the questions that immediately leaps out to me from what you were saying earlier is that many of the insights you're talking about, I mean, of course, they've been fleshed out and reproduced and strengthened uh, um, most more recently. But you were talking about some of them being 60, 70 years old. Now, uh, and what this speaks to me, and I can only speak from my own experience and uh, with, without casting any aspersions on my, my own colleagues, um, looking around my own campus... I would say that I know pre- pretty. I, most, I know someone in pretty much every department, with the exception of psychology, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that might just be you know it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a one-off anecdote. Um, but you yourself were were talking about how there there's a a, a culture uh, across the sciences, but also in the mind sciences of just pursuing the interesting thing. Um, and how that takes place in a very sort of recondite and siloed um, uh, discourse. Um, and the result of that is that, um, you know, and basically until I came across your work, I wouldn't have thought that psychology or neuroscience had anything at all to tell us about climate action. It, it was, just wouldn't have been a, a, a department whose door I would have knocked on if I'd been interested. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I don't feel that at all. I feel it has a huge contribution to make. So what? What going back to these institutional questions, um, 
why did it take 70 years and, and what needs to change within the, uh, the mind sciences in particular? So they're, they're prone to all of the, the, the constraints of all the other sciences and, and perhaps even more. So the, the interesting phrase is like the smaller the stakes, the harder the fights can be between people. And the more you go up in sort of the, the layers of social sciences, to some degree, the smaller the stakes become. So there, there has been lots of infighting between different schools of, of social sciences and psychological sciences. Uh, over the the past decades, but um, what is really the the thing that that we still see happening today is that that individual psychologists are rewarded and neuroscientists are rewarded for rediscovering something that was discovered seventy years ago, and are not discovered for looking up whether it has been already discovered some time ago. And so it's much more rewarding to give something a new name and to publish a paper about something as if it's a new thing that you've just discovered, rather than digging into the literature from the 1950s and 60s to see if someone else had a similar idea in the past. Because if you then find that someone else has had that idea in the past, then all of a sudden you can't publish anymore in good conscience as if you've discovered something new. Um, Another anecdote to put next to yours is that like one of the the people that I really learned a lot from, Elliot Aronson, was a psychologist who began in the 1950s under Leon Festinger, who was the person who came up with the theory of cognitive dissonance, which sits behind a lot of the the pyramids and the actions that I believe thinking. And um, he kept track of the throughout the years of of related ideas to cognitive dissonance that were making very similar predictions as to what the cognitive dissonance theorist had made in the 1950s and by the time he stopped doing that because he retired he stood at 20 to 30 concepts in psychology or theories in psychology that were making very similar claims to uh to cognitive dissonance like we we know recently about things like backfire effects uh, motivated reasoning, those are just kinds of terms that have been studied that mean almost the same or that, that say almost the same stuff as, as cognitive dissonance theory said in the 1950s. And so that's that's the core of the problem, why they haven't become more integrated. So because the focus for an academic in an institution is to make a mark through your own publications and when I started to, to do this differently, when this is like sort of 2010, I started to realize that that was not the thing what, what was needed. And I started to instead think about using these incredibly useful insights. No, it doesn't matter that they've been rediscovered 10 or 20 times. They are incredibly useful. And then making them work in those real-life contexts I was just running into closed doors everywhere. What I was told, and I've tried this through many uh, sort of grant applications over the years, and it, it's slightly changing now, but but in the beginning, I was told that what I was doing wasn't science because it wasn't novel. 
it wasn't public engagement because I wasn't doing public engagement myself. I was teaching other people how to do better public engagement. It wasn't knowledge exchange because I wasn't doing knowledge exchange myself. I was helping other people to do better knowledge exchange. And it wasn't policy engagement because, again, I wasn't interested in speaking to the policymakers myself. I was interested in helping other scientists speak to the policymakers. So I was falling in between of the cracks of all of the publishing, all of the... Uh, the funding places, the academic funding places. And the reason why why things started to change is because like very slowly opportunities have started to open up within the academic funding system, but not enough yet. The ENSI program is funded by the local government association, the majority of it. Part of it, small part of it has been funded by UCL over the years. But the majority of it was funded by the local government association, which is a semi-governmental association that gets its funding from uh, DLUC, the government department on on local communities and leveling up, and and um, and so that's where the where the ability to bring these different sectors has come from, not from academia but from outside of academia. Our, the previous training program that I mentioned where we brought environmental scientists and policymakers together wasn't funded by NERC. It was funded by DEFRA, a government department. So we had to be really inventive to sneak this new way of working into funding places that previously weren't open for it. And we are still struggling when we are submitting an application for an academic funding when we are running into traditional academic reviewers who are not seeing the value of what it is that we're trying to do. Um, but things are slowly changing, and so they will only keep on moving in the right direction. I have no uh, doubt about that. But but they could move faster, basically, and and, and hopefully initiatives like ENZIP, but also initiatives like your podcast, will help academics understand the need for that moving away from innovation and discovery to uh, making sure that you deliver value to society, positive outcomes in society with the work that you're doing. Obviously, I couldn't agree more, Chris, and thanks for putting that so uh, clearly. I mean, what I hear just you know loud and clear from that is uh, a call for um, science heal thyself. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but with the help of outsiders, with the help of others, this is not actually just about science. Science certainly does need to heal, heal itself. But uh, um, as you said, um, with one foot outside, probably in the first instance, whether it's from uh, unusual um, sources of funding like the local government association or uh, whatever, it's uh, science needs these collaborations to have uh, new relations and therefore uh, that's how it can move to uh, a new self-definition. This has been a really fantastic discussion. Thank you so much, Chris. But um, we we finish with a standardised question which I will put to you and which you can answer very briefly uh, with one word if you wish, uh, which is that uh, if we are now proverbially going over the cliff and we urgently need a new science for the Anthropocene, that is a science for the Anthropocene, uh, will we learn to fly? My one word response is hopefully, 
Um, and my slightly longer response is like, if we think that that response is a crisis, a dealing with the crisis response, we're going to fail. What we can do is we can become better at preparing society to deal with increasing complexity. So it's not a disaster response that we need. It's not a crisis response that we need. It's a complexity response that we need. We've, through the the way that we tackle problems in the 20th century, problems of global health, of sanitation, of social development, we've created a world which has become much better to live in than the world we had before for most people, not for everyone, but for most people, for many people at least. And we've also created a much more complex world in which the problems that we now face are orders of magnitude bigger than the problems we were trying to deal with in the 20th century. So the science that we need is one that helps us to deal with that increasing complexity that doesn't rely on individual genius to be resolved, that relies on developing new ways of working together to tackle that complexity. That's the thing that we need. That's why the focus of a lot of our work is on building partnerships between people with different skill sets, because that's the skill set that is going to save us. That is the skill set that is going to learn us to to fly, basically. Teach us how to fly. Fantastic, Chris. If I could just put that a slightly different way, and I hope you would agree, it's to say that the, the future is not beyond the transition. The future is transition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that's the new normal, so to speak. Yeah, fantastic, Chris Demeyer. Thank you very much for a wonderful discussion, and uh, thank you also for our, to our listeners for listening. Um, please join us on the next podcast uh, in due course. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you.